1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates National Average 12-Month Savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
2: Thanks, guys. One other thing. It's been great working with you guys in the press. You've been fantastic all over the country. All right. Florio, you can write what you want. It's
3: okay. Way, to go, Mike. That
1: was unnecessary, but I loved it. I loved it. I loved. It. I, loved it. I. I was sitting in my office, 27-inch monitor, working on this side. Got my PFT thing up. You know, right whenever I was doing little window on the other side with the press conference. And it just is one of those moments where you're like, if I'd have had a mouthful of water or coffee or soda, I would have spit it all over the screen. So and he came back, he was done. He was it was over. Yeah. He came back yeah. for his final words as an NFL head that coach. Is,
3: that <laughs> is when you know. That's when you know that he loves you. Oh
1: yes. <laughs> yes. Love and hate, very similar emotions opposite end of the spectrum. I prefer either to indifference, Peter. I look at it this way. Of
3: course. If they
1: weren't listening, if they weren't reading, if it wasn't having an impact, if I wasn't residing in his brain rent-free, as the kids would say, he never would have said it. So thank you, Bruce. I've arrived. It took 20 years, but I've arrived. Good morning, Peter. How are you?
3: But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't you arrive when Aaron Rodgers said something about you? Well,
1: yeah, we've got that. That'll that'll pop up at some point. Isn't now we that can... a little
3: bit bigger than Bruce Arians?
1: Yes, but this is the first one since then that it was a call out yeah, like okay. that. And now, yeah. see, I don't know if I've told you this. I've I've already got my tombstone designed. My tombstone yeah. is going to feature a flat screen, solar powered, infinite loop of the Aaron Rodgers. Don't waste your time reading that crap. And it, eventually, they'll just start playing it without <laughs> warning. It'll be on that screen, and it'll be motion-activated because why burn out the screen if nobody's there? So it'll come on like yeah, once like every four. five years when I mean, somebody actually walks up. Reading, there it is. Uh, there it is. We already like, have the mock-up.
3: Like I mean, don't waste your time reading, yep. uh, reading crap yeah. like that. Like Mike All right. Okay, I mean, don't that's waste enough. <laughs> that's enough.
1: So now we can add that to it. That's the the ultimate farewell. You do that for a couple times, not not one for one, maybe three Aaron Rodgers, one Bruce Arians, three Aaron Rodgers, one Bruce Arians. So whoever would visit my gravesite would be entertained by that. You know what you That's want to my do? My vision.
3: Your goal should be, um, I'm thinking of George Costanza. Our goal should be a society without classes. No, I'm your goal should be. How can I really get Bill Belichick's go? I just yes, so yes. that at one Bill, point you're on my phone. So say something. Point, yes, yeah. <laughs> That's what you should do. Figure out the people you really want to say something about it. So when you're dead, you can play that on a loop.
1: But but you know it's funny. Both times it's happened, Rogers and now with Arians, I can tell that they really didn't want to that they really tried not to. If you watch the whole Aaron Rodgers exchange, you can see it's building up, and he knows, he knows. I give this guy power if I mention him by name. And he didn't yeah. want to do it. He didn't want to do it, and he eventually couldn't help himself. And I think Bruce, I think Bruce, once he wandered beyond the room, that's when he felt compelled to add the postscript. I worked, I liked working with all except you, you asshole. Up, oh, oh, sorry, I said it, sorry. Sorry. Oh, it's going to be a fun two hours. I, you know, Peter, we've realized in recent days. Number one, we're not on any FCC-regulated airwaves, and number two, nobody really cares. So every once in a while, Sims or I will let something like that fly. So I apologize in advance for whatever I may say next, and I apologize for everything that I've ever said, except for the things that really get people mad enough to call me out by name. So anyway, uh, we got two hours. It's been a busy week, and you, you had, you had the story, and I peeled back the curtain a little bit yesterday that. You know, I, I had just a vague idea that you had something significant, and I'm like, oh, huh? Oh, what in the world's going on? And I said yesterday because we were talking about Lamar Jackson, the first thing I thought of is, oh, Lamar Jackson's getting traded, and Peter has the scoop. That was the first place my mind went. I didn't even think, even though I was kind of waiting and watching and wondering if Bruce Arians was going to step down.
3: Yeah, did you talk I'd about? I forgot about talk that. About that yesterday? Did you yes. talk about that yesterday with Arians? Because we did talk about it on the phone a little bit.
1: That yeah, you the had idea
3: a suspicion that that this was coming.
1: Well, that that two hours after Tom Brady unretired, I got a tip that the next shoe to fall, Azarians is going to be out, and I just wasn't able to substantiate it. And the next morning, we kind of hinted around that on PFT Live yeah. the morning after Brady right. unretired that that there was a number. There were two thoughts in the building: one, they really were concerned he was trying to work his way to another team, quite possibly San Francisco. And two, now that Brady was back, there was a belief that that whether he made a demand or not, and I heard Jason Light on Rich Eisen yesterday saying he never demanded it. Well, part of being Tom Brady is you you don't have to demand it. You don't have to get your hands dirty. There are ways to get your point across. You don't even have to say it directly. You let Don Yee do it, or you let somebody else two layers down send a message to somebody in the Buccaneers organization. That way you got your hands clean. You got complete plausible deniability. You never ordered the code red. It happened way below where you are to someone way below the top of the Buccaneers organization and it filters up and they understand if you want this guy back, that's what you got to do. And there are people who are going to believe that. There are people who are going to firmly believe that the timeline cries out that this wasn't your average normal coach decides to walk off into the sunset on March 30th.
3: And Mike, I think that logic says that there's smoke there. There's no question about it. Um, and I tried in two different ways other than in the conversation, uh, we had in the last few days with, with Arians to find out whether there was anything to it. And, and I have always believed, and you just said this, I've always believed that a person like Tom Brady, I'm not even talking about, I I don't even mean a player like Tom Brady, a person like Tom Brady has the ability to get a point across and not have to say it directly. And again, I don't know anything that would directly tie him to uh, asking the Bucks to get rid of Arians if he was going to come back. I know nothing. The only thing I know is what Arians told me, which is, in his words, a pile of it. And so, and so that will be his way of saying it, and that will be his belief and what he is passing on. But, Mike, what you say is right. There's a lot of smoke there at some point, hopefully sooner than later, but maybe not until Seth Wickersham writes the book in 12 years <laughs> or, or, or whoever does. You know, maybe you will at some point. Uh, And maybe I will. But the point is, right now, we don't have proof that it happened. We have suspicion that it might have happened, but we don't have the proof. I guess the follow-up to it's better to be feared would be it's
1: better to be buzzed. That would be the better to be boozed. (laughs) It's better to be boozed. That's it. That's the story of the three years of Bruce Arians in Tampa Bay, including the two of Tom Brady. It's better to be boozed, uh, coming from Seth Wickersham and. 2029, uh, but but you're right. There's a story there that's going to come out eventually, and it's inevitable that it's going to come out. And it, it just, I was on radio with the afternoon show on WDAE in Tampa. They reached out and invited me on, and I did a quick little Twitter research on the show and on the host and it was obvious I was walking into a lion's den that they don't agree with many of the things that I have to say about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and it's funny anytime you say things that you believe that may not be popular among a fan base they just assume you hate the team and you're just trying to stir up crap and I wasn't going to go on. And I thought, you know, wait a minute. I criticize guys like Aaron Rodgers for only ever going on a friendly platform like the Pat McAfee yeah. safe space that he's on every Tuesday. So I said, I'll do it. I'll do it. I I'll, I'll Let them say what they want to say, and we'll talk it through. And one of the things I said to him is, you know, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence here. And circumstantial evidence gets a bad rap. Circumstantial evidence is valuable evidence. I go to bed at night. My car's outside. There's no snow on it. I wake up the next morning. There's snow on it, but it's not snowing. But the circumstantial evidence is it snowed. So when you see something happen this late, first one, we talked about this the other night, first one since Jimmy Johnson in 1994, who disappears in late March. And obviously there was a hell of a story behind that one. This is not normal. This is not usual. So it cries out for scrutiny. It cries out for an examination and it cries out for reporting eventually on what exactly happened because this isn't the usual season ends. Coach is done, and he says, I'm out. He locked in for three months. He was all in, all in. And and as he tells it, he was all in until Tom Brady was coming back. And that's when I decided, hey, now's the time to leave. And the average person, I think, would look at that and say, why would you think that's the time to leave? That's the time you, you utter a gigantic sigh of relief that this season won't be a potential crap show without Tom Brady. I got a year here where I can keep doing what I've been doing. I talked to somebody at the end of the season, and it may have been you, Peter, about the possibility that Arians walks away into the sunset. And whoever I was talking to about it said, well, why would he? He's got it made. He's got it made. Why wouldn't he stay for another year with Tom Brady? He's not working nearly as hard as other coaches, and he made no bones
3: about it. He reveled in it. Why would he walk away from that situation? I think there's two reasons. And if if it is as he says... Look, you know, Bruce Arians is not the guy who sleeps in his office or who gets there at 4.30 in the morning and leaves at midnight. He's just not that guy. And I think the most logical thing is exactly what his words were. I think one of the reasons I believe, and look, for people who don't know, uh, and it's not that big a deal, but Arians recently asked Sam Farmer and I, both of whom, both of us have written extensively about Arians for years, uh, and he asked us if, you know, if, if we could keep something quiet for a while, he would let us break a story. Uh, he'd give us the high sign when it, was, when it was ready to go. And my first reaction was, it's, it's never going to hold. <clears throat> but he told us what it was. We agreed and he told us what it was. And, and so my first thought was, this is, this is crazy. But in that first conversation, he spoke for about 10 minutes pretty passionately about uh, the state of black coaching and minorities in coaching. And you go back and you look at Bruce Arians' history. Bruce Arians at Virginia Tech in the late 60s, early 70s, I forget exactly what it was. But Bruce Arians was a quarterback at Virginia Tech. An option quarterback, believe it or not. And his roommate in college was the father of Tiki and Rondé Barber. You know, the eventual father, uh, who's a black man. And so, uh, in which in those times, in, in those days, in the South, was pretty rare. And if you look at his coaching staffs over the years, they were always populated, you, know, with more black coaches than you know were the norm in the NFL. And he said one thing when we were first talking about it. he goes, "Listen, if I give Todd Bowles the team with uh, Blaine Gabbard and Kyle Trask as the quarterback, and he goes six and 11 or he goes 7-10, and, and then next year is just as bad, and they're on this perpetual search for a quarterback, Todd's going to get fired, and his second chance, he will not succeed, and he'll never get a chance again. And it's just, he said, what, what opportunities do black coaches get? Most of them crappy. And he said, so in this particular case, when Brady came back, I said, now is the time. Because now Todd Bowles is going to have a chance this year to win a Super Bowl. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But now he's going to have a chance. And Mike, that's the one thing about this story. I texted Jonathan Jones of CBS Sports yesterday and said, th- I thought you wrote a great column. And his column, in essence, was, look, I don't know what happened with Brady and whether he uh, strong-armed Arians out of there. I, I, don't, I don't know what happened. But let's not forget the significant thing in here. At a time when the NFL is crying out for more minority representation on coaching staffs and as head coaches, at that time, here's the guy who has been the godfather of that, so let's appreciate what he's done. And that's kind of, I mean, that's how I felt when I wrote the story I wrote the other night.
1: And Peter, one thing I said yesterday that just kind of occurred to me as Chris Sims and I were talking it through and I need to write this at PFT. The league would be very wise to get Bruce Arians involved in the broader efforts to get oh, owners to no think question. differently and to act differently. And who better than Bruce Arians to walk into the room full of oligarchs and tell them like it is? Who better than him? Who who would be better suited to do that, to speak the hard truths in his own charming S and F-bomb way than Bruce Arians. It would be perfect, and it's exactly what the league should do because he's figured something out that plenty of owners and coaches have not. And whatever that is, they need to sprinkle some of it onto those teams out there that are wondering, as the league is perplexed and dismayed And flabbergasted by the fact that the mindset after all these years hasn't changed. The level of comfort when you get down to your finalists. The white owner gravitating toward the white head coach time and again. I said this back after the Flores lawsuit was filed when people were saying, does it have merit? It's like, well, look at it this way. You flip a coin 500 times, it comes up heads 490 times. Probably got a problem with your coin. And Arians is the kind of guy that could help them fix the coin. And they definitely should explore ways they can incorporate him in communicating directly with the owners and other coaches to get them to do things the way he did things, and that would be the best possible
3: post-coaching job that Bruce Arians could have. You need to write that today, I think. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to steal it for Monday. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, on my list, Mike. It's on my list, Mike. Here, Mike, here's, here's one other thing I think. It's important to think about that. So it was very interesting at the NFL meetings. And I am going to pat myself on the back here because about six weeks ago, I wrote that the NFL needs to mandate that every team have a black or minority coach who touches the quarterback, who has something to do on the coaching staff with the quarterback. And I'm not talking about quality control, get the coffee, um, you know, mimeograph, and I'm exaggerating that you don't mimeograph anymore, but, you know, make copies of the game plan. But, you know, n- not that. Okay, I'm talking about sitting in meetings and being around the quarterback and the offensive coordinator every day. And, yeah, it, it, you know, the, the role could vary. But And voila, six weeks later, the NFL does exactly that. But what they did also in there, which uh, I think a lot of people are sort of ambivalent about, is they included women in that in that uh, uh, in that little codicil. And it, and now, you know, the rule basically reads that every team has to have on its offensive coaching staff, uh, a person who is in the room, you know, as these decisions are made, as game plans are formulated, blah, blah, blah. And it's either got to be a minority or a woman. And Arians was big on that because he said, I didn't even put this in the story, but it was funny. He said, because, you know, he, he had 11 black assistant coaches, you know, on his last staff in Tampa. 11. I mean, that's that's almost half a coaching staff. But But, and then he said, It was almost like an aside. He goes, and you know, I just did the women because I put the women on our staff because I think they deserve it. I think it's wrong. There aren't women coaching in the game. And he said, the two women that we have are really, really good. And one is the assistant strength and conditioning coach. One is the assistant D-line coach, Lori uh, Locust. I always mispronounce... Uh, the, the strength and conditioning coaches, and I apologize to her for that. But Arians also thought that that was important because it is, in essence, the way of the future. Who knows if there will ever be, in our lifetime, a woman offensive coordinator. But Arians has talked to me about this before. He goes, these women understand that everybody's going to be skeptical about them. That, oh, they can't do the job. So they have to be overqualified. They have to know more about the game than, than a man does because everybody is going to be looking, looking at that and, and putting out the little trick questions for him and all that. And so I, I think he ought to be, whatever, recognized for that as well.
1: You're absolutely right. Now, first of all, I do have to say this. You brought back the memory for me of the smell of the mimeographed quiz page that used to be distributed (laughs) in grade school. That weird kind of blue-purple ink. There it is. There's the piano. They've been holding the piano (laughs) just for that. But there are people in the audience who will know that smell. You kind of pick it up a little bit and you get a whiff of it before you you fail your quiz, as I used to do. But, Peter, when... (laughs) When they passed the rule this week, my first thought was, are there really teams that don't have either a black or a female offensive assistant somewhere? This has to be done? This has to be required? That surprised me because I just would have assumed that every team could already check that box. Secondly, the one thing about the rule I don't like is that these individuals are going to be paid by a league-wide fund because that stigmatizes them on the way through the door. Because if this is a true opportunity, you don't want them – in any way different from the rest of the coaches. And Sims and I talked about yeah. it. He was in that environment in New England. It's very competitive. It's very cutthroat. And if there's something that makes you different inherently from the moment you arrive, that makes it harder to compete on all fours with everyone else. And finally, the core of this problem, and we want to – I'll bring it back to Bruce Arians and, and appreciation for him and the things that he said yesterday, but, but nepotism is the biggest problem. Because opportunities are given to the children of coaches for a variety of reasons, many of which are valid. But when those seats are filled, when your coaches are predominantly white, by the white children of the white coaches, those are opportunities that could go to a more diverse and inclusive coaching staff. That's one of the biggest problems that the NFL has shown no inclination to even begin to address because I think the owner's believe there's an inherent hypocrisy because they own the business they have family members they need to get their family members up to speed on running the business because they're going to die and one of those family members is going to take over someday and I try to tell people all the time there's a fundamental difference between ownership succession and coaching succession because ownership succession is necessary to the operation and ownership of the business Coaching succession, especially within the family, isn't because the coach is an employee, not an owner of the team. But that nepotism angle is one of the reasons why those opportunities aren't there as plentiful as they should be. And it's why they needed to take your advice and create a separate track that just gives people a chance to do the job. It's one thing to be qualified objectively. It's another thing to have the opportunity to grow and develop and learn through the reps and the hours and the games and the seasons of
3: being an assistant coach. Mike, I was told that there are about 20 to 25 uh, in major college football. The What is it called? The Power Five? Whatever that... I'm not a big college football person, but the big conferences, you know, the SEC and the Big Ten and Pac-12, all that, that there are approximately... 20 to 25 offensive coordinators or quarterback coaches or assistant head coach slash offense, whatever there, there are, uh, there's, you know, 20 ish. And <clears throat> a cut, when I did this story six weeks ago, Mike Loxley, who is black, who is the head coach at the university of Maryland, and he is the executive director of the minority football coaches, Association of America I'm not saying that right but that's in essence what it is and I asked him if he thought that many of those candidates would jump to the NFL if given an opportunity like I discussed and he goes absolutely he goes not now not all of them would necessarily but a lot would and and he goes, that's the kind of upward mobility we really, really need. Because for everyone who says, well, wait a second, how big a deal is it really? All you have to do is look at the pipeline. Why is Kevin O'Connell a head coach in the NFL today? Look, and I'm not demeaning Kevin O'Connell. I like Kevin O'Connell. I think he's going to be good. But he is a head coach in the NFL today because he was on Sean McVay's coaching staff and you can't just be on his coaching staff. And oh, it's like the old joke. Uh, Joe Buck, I think, said it on TV. If if you're his barista and you made him coffee, you're going to get an interview for a head coaching job. And, and and you know, haha. But I do think that there is a certain cachet to being on the staff of highly highly respected young wonderkind coaches, like, for instance, Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay. Look and see all the people who've worked with them, including Matt LaFleur, you know, including Zach Taylor. Look and see all the people who've worked with them who have gone on, not just to coach teams, to coach really damn well. I mean, you know, look at LaFleur's record. It's one of the best three-year records ever in NFL history atop a team. Zach Taylor, he gets the quarterback back. They make beautiful music together. They go to the Super Bowl. So, and listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the only way you get a job is this way. But I'll, I'll just say this. If right now that rule, which needs to become permanent and it needs to be carved into every budget of every NFL franchise, somehow, some way, $275, $300,000, so that you can actually attract really good candidates and you can have them sitting in the room with Aaron Rodgers all season just basically to understand how this S works. There's another
1: angle to this too, and I promise we're going to bring it back to Bruce Arians, but since we're talking about this, Peter, this is a point that Sims has made. They need to pay the folks at the very bottom of the ladder more. There's this strange dynamic that they've convinced people is a badge of honor, a proven ground, an apprenticeship, where your first opportunity results in you getting paid nothing or next to nothing. So if you have a family, if you don't have a family that has a lot of money, If you don't have a circumstance that allows you to basically go work for free or close to it, to demonstrate that you have true passion, because nothing demonstrates true passion like working your ass off and not getting paid much to do it. Exactly. (laughs) That needs to end. That needs to end because there are people who will self-select on the way through the door to not do it because they can't. I would love to do it. But I can't because I need to make money. I have bills to pay. I have mouths to feed. I have a car payment. I have to live in something other than a one-room, 400-square-foot apartment. That is a reality that never gets discussed. But there are certain people who can do it because I got the money, I got the support system in place. Yeah. And there there are many who just can't. There are many who cannot say, hey, yeah, you know what? I can make it for two or three years with no income or absolutely close to poverty line, not even living wages to prove myself. Why does that? in in of all industries, the National Football League, which is printing money like it's off a mimeograph. Why in the world is that even necessary anymore? That's something else that needs to change.
3: Yeah, Mike, I. I, I want to tell you a story. In 2009, uh, maybe 2008, Scott Pioli, who then uh, at the time in two thousand it was this was 2008, he met a guy who was a, a graduate assistant at Boston College named Ryan Poles. Pioli was, uh, you know, basically the de facto GM for the Patriots at the time, and he met this this kid just out of college named Ryan Poles. And at Boston College. And he he struck up a relationship. When you go to these college campuses, you meet a lot of these guys and get to know them a little bit. And the next year, Pioli offered him a job as a scouting assistant. Basically kind of a gopher job with the Kansas City Chiefs when he got the GM job in 2009. So the one thing he said was, now, job doesn't pay much. I, I think it was like thirty thousand dollars. Job doesn't pay much, but that's the way it is, uh, and and everybody understands that's the way it is in the NFL. When you start in, in at an NFL job it, with an NFL team, you're at the bottom of the totem pole. Things are going to be scrappy, shall we say? Maybe take the S off. But anyway, you're not going to get paid much. When Ryan Poles got to Kansas City. He you know, and at one point he looked down at his paycheck and he said, "Hey, wait a minute, I'm getting more than 30,000." Pioli, because he felt bad about making a guy move to a new place and have to get all everything together, he basically started him at 40,000 instead of 30,000. But the vast majority of people who hire first-time people or, or, or you know, just starter salaries. You know, for college graduates, they're awful. It's like barista pay. Um, but, but I'll I, I'll just say this: that in many cases, the reason that they can get away with it is that if Ryan Poles doesn't want the job, there's 30 people behind him who would love right. to be a scouting assistant for the Kansas City Chiefs at twenty thousand dollars a year. Exactly. So that's exactly one of the reasons why this happens,
1: <clears throat> and it it eliminates people who just can't do it or won't yeah. do it. And I feel like there's this, <clears throat> this thought that, again, that's how you prove you love it. The first time I ever realized that that's the way it is, I heard about the experiences of Charlie Casserly when he was getting started. And I have found a quote while we've been talking here from Casserly about his early days in the NFL he was an unpaid intern with the now Washington commanders. He lived at the YMCA for $8 a night. Yeah. More bugs than people, he said, and he lived on jars of peanut butter and jelly swirl. That is no way to live. That is no way to cultivate a future. That is no way to treat your people when you have a 1000000000 dollar industry that made— in 2021 alone, $270 million through its money-for-nothing arrangement with gambling companies where you're not doing anything differently, you're not doing anything more, you don't have to hire any more employees, you're just getting another 270000000 million league-wide just because you're letting the gambling companies say we're one of the seven sportsbook partners of the NFL. So the money is yeah. falling from the sky. And if you want to know where the barriers are, There are various barriers. Nepotism is one, but not paying a living wage to the people at the very bottom of the ladder is another very real way that naturally prevents your coaching staff from being as diverse as it could be. And this is more about background, not just race. I mean, Peter, I never could have done it. It never would have been a thought for me. I had to go make money. I had college loans to pay off. I was as lower middle class as you could have been. I couldn't pause my life for two years if it was something I really wanted to do. There's no way in hell I would have been able to do it. It never even would have been a thought. So there are a lot of people that fall right. in that category who are okay. never getting an opportunity, and that needs to change. That absolutely needs to change.
3: Yeah, and you make the good point. Teams should have to pay for this. I I, I totally agree with you. You know. Uh, guy walks in the in the offensive meeting room. Oh yeah, that's the guy the league sent us. You know, right. It, it shouldn't be that way. It right. should be this is a new hire is going to help us win. That should yep. be the thought. You know. Yep. And and I, I I hope I really hope that's one way. And and look, the NFL is so desperate to increase the number of significant minority coaches at significant positions right now. it's They're so hungry to do that, that in my opinion, I think they need to understand that the teams have to get on with this too. This can't be something that the league is saying to the teams, you have to do this. Now go and take your medicine and hire somebody who's whatever, to do whatever. The real key here is, Mike, I'm going to write about this for Monday. The real key is giving minority, uh, coaches, real responsibilities. And that is something that everyone should be on the lookout for beat. People who cover teams should absolutely find out exactly what, uh, the new coach is going to do on that staff and, and, and how much responsibility is that coach going to have, uh, and, and, you know, make the team. Basically tell them exactly what it is and then check during the season to make sure that that is what's happening. That's my thought. It's like any other industry. When you come in the front
1: door, you get a certain amount of responsibility. You prove you can handle it. You earn more. You prove you can handle that. You earn more. You prove you can handle that. You earn more. And that needs to be a level playing field across the board as well. And it needs to be fundamentally a meritocracy based upon what people do once they get their seat at the table and they start doing the work. Back to Bruce Arians. Let's circle it back here because we've got a couple of different topics I want to address. Let's take it all the way back to where we started with Bruce Arians addressing his relationship with the guy who showed up and sat in the front row at the press conference yesterday tom brady
0: you mentioned that you talked to tom i don't know if you were able to share any details from that conversation with us there have been reports about you know friction with him um but obviously he's here today he's here today to celebrate your career what can you say about your relationship with him in that conversation
2: get your ass on the golf course man i'm getting broke (laughs) Uh, no, we have a great relationship. I mean, of uh, all the players who are, there are a few in here, every one of them's gotten cussed out, all right? including him. So that's just part of me, you know. So uh, there's that, nothing new. But we have a great relationship. I mean, as soon as he retired, I think we text every week. Hey, where are you at? What are you doing? When are you going to play golf? Uh, when are you getting back down this way? And uh, so <laughs> people got it right. I mean, and uh, it couldn't be further from the truth.
1: Played that yesterday and didn't get bleeped. Look, there's Tom Brady, at the front row of the press conference. And Peter Miles Simmons and I talked about this yesterday on PFTPM. This is where you need to inject common sense. And I probably was less tactful about it yesterday than I should have been. Imagine that. But the fact that Tom Brady was there means nothing. It means nothing. Plenty of people attend the funerals of individuals they didn't like. I'm not saying there isn't a personal relationship there that is premised on fondness. It's possible to have a strained professional relationship and a perfectly fine personal relationship. And they like to hang out. They like to golf. They text each other. That's fine. But you know what? We just can't work together anymore. I have no reason to think that Tom Brady has a strained personal relationship with Bill Belichick, but it was obvious it got to the point after 20 years that the professional relationship couldn't continue. So by saying we get along fine... And we're going to golf and we text that that buries the deeper question of whether or not Tom Brady, after 20 years with the ultimate grinder, who was there every day working as hard as everyone else, swapping that for the guy who who bragged about the fact that he wasn't really doing all that much. And if Rich Ornberger's observations from earlier this year have any accuracy at all, and I have a feeling they do, if you're going to barnstorm in late in the week and start messing with the game plan when you haven't been there to construct it, that's going to create resentment. That would be true in any workplace. If the boss has mostly disappeared and shows up from time to time to mess with the work that the people who are busting their asses have done, the human beings involved at some point are going to roll their eyes and at some point, they're going to get upset. That's just basic human
3: nature. Mike, I think what has to happen here is, you know, if you, depending on where you fall on this and depending on what you believe, I, I, I was thinking of this, I was telling somebody yesterday that if you had asked me, the first team I covered for uh, ever, was the Cincinnati Bengals, where Boomer Esiason was the quarterback, Sam Weich was the coach. Uh, Boomer, and you know, I was a beat guy, I was around these guys every day, and Boomer Esiason was driven crazy by Sam Weich. Uh, And and loved his imagination, but really had some issues with him. And later on, during the strike season of 1987, they were at war. Um, Phil Simms and Bill Parcells. When Phil Sims played for Bill Parcells, I can tell you that he had to grind his teeth a lot to take the stuff from Parcells. There's a famous scene from a Monday night game at Indianapolis in the 80s where Parcells is screaming at Sims on the sidelines. Uh, Today, Phil Sims would walk to Florida to be with Parcells if he asked him. Uh, And so, and and all the time over the years, you know, the friction between Mike Holmgren and Brett Favre, legendary. Um, You know, the stuff between Bill Walsh and the great Joe Montana, huge. There was a huge divide between them, particularly after he traded for Steve Young. I guess what I'm saying is almost every quarterback that I've covered for any long period of time, has a problem and a major problem with the people or person who coaches them day to day. I'll take it all
1: the way back to the seventies. The guy who allowed the personal friction to become a permanent or the professional friction to become permanent personal friction and alienation, Terry Bradshaw with Chuck Knoll. They never had a good personal relationship because Terry Bradshaw didn't respond well to the way he was being coached, and it never changed, yeah. and he completely detached emotionally from any positive feelings about Chuck Noll. And I guarantee you if the original TB12 had any of the power and influence that the current TB12 enjoys, the original TB12 at some point would have tried <laughs> to engineer a coaching change in Pittsburgh. And he would admit it.
3: Yeah. That's a very good it's a good point. Now you know what uh old man Rooney would have said and Dan Rooney would have said <laughs> get your heine back in the locker room and shut up. Don't be an idiot. You know but it's the same but, thing if but, can you imagine can you imagine if Robert Kraft, if Belichick or if Brady ever went to to craft after three Super Bowls and say, "Hey, what about this Belichick? What, what you know? What are you going to do?" And he would have said, "Get out of here." <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, but you know what the difference is in Tampa Bay after they've seen twenty years of game days with more, more wide swaths of red empty seats than people, and they had a year of Tom Brady, and they really want another yeah. one. That's when your mindset <laughs> changes yeah. a little bit about listening to the guy that maybe threw. Two or three levels below him is sending messages about what it would take in theory, hypothetically, for Tom Brady to decide to end his short retirement from the NFL. Peter, one thing that I'm encouraged based on something I heard last night, that it's a weird little angle. And we talked about it Wednesday night before your story went up. And I saw the things the NFL was telling reporters about it. And I got the same email as well when I started asking questions. The fact that the Rooney rule doesn't apply after March 1, because after March 1, the coaching staffs are locked in place and teams yeah. are allowed to say you you can't talk to our offensive, defensive, special teams coordinator, quarterbacks, coach, whoever you may want to interview. You can't. So you can't do a real search. So the Rooney rule doesn't apply. And in this case, I have people say, well, Todd Bowles is black, so it doesn't matter. Right. But the Rooney rule requires at least two external candidates to be interviewed. So technically in this case, the Rooney rule was not complied with because there should have been news cycles in the coming days of at least two minority candidates who were getting an interview and we would have talked about it it would have shown up on ESPN.com Associated Press and these individuals not only would they have had their name in circulation and their name attached to a head coaching interview which psychologically helps with the other jobs as they become vacant they would have gotten the opportunity of being interviewed there's value in that and the NFL's position was well you know what the Rooney Rule doesn't apply after March 1 so basically you can Do whatever you want. And they've recognized quickly that that is a very dangerous loophole, that that can be used in a way, in theory. And the first thing I thought of was Jerry Jones. Well, now he's got license to fire Mike McCarthy anytime he wants after March 1 and hire Sean Payton or fire Mike McCarthy and elevate Dan Quinn. So they need to close that loophole, and I'm told they're already thinking about doing that. And the easy solution is you have a coach who leaves after March 1. You name an interim coach from your staff. And then after the season, you do a normal search like you would if the guy disappears in July, August, September, October. That's a fix that needs to be made before somebody uses that exception to the Rooney rule in a way that results in a white coach instantly without a search replacing the coach who has left after March 1.
3: You know, we talked about this, uh, you and I, and... I think it was. I think I said it. You might have said it. But what if Bruce Arians picked Clyde Christensen, his quarterbacks coach, yes. who's been a great coach over the years? Well, Clyde Christensen is white, and what if he picked Clyde Christensen? Would the league have said the same thing? Uh, the league would have been in hot water if, in my opinion, and would have been getting raked over the coals if Arians felt the need to uh, really back in the Bucks felt the need. To, to hire a white coach. But Mike, getting back to what you said earlier, here's the other problem with your point, that these would have been absolute total sham interviews. And look, it's hard enough when, uh, when a coach knows, I mean, somebody in New Orleans told me that Aaron Glenn thought that, hey, look, this is a closed job when he agreed to go do an interview, Aaron Glenn is the defensive coordinator of the lions used to be on the saints coaching staff and did an interview with Mickey Loomis, the general manager of the saints, uh, for the head coaching job, which eventually went to Dennis Allen. And I had heard that he was reticent to interview because it was kind of a waste of time. The funny thing about that is, and this goes against my overall point about everybody would have known these these were sham interviews. This goes against my point, but I am going to tell you this. At the scouting combine this year, I asked Mickey Loomis about uh his interview process. And three different times during the course of his conversation, he goes, Aaron Glenn hit a grand slam. He 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 was absolutely phenomenal in this interview. And he goes, Just wait until he gets a couple more next year. He says he's going to get a job. And I found myself asking around to some veteran GM types at the Combine and asking about, you know, who's next, you know, in in the minority list. And two other people mentioned Aaron Glenn. So maybe, just maybe, you're right, and uh, an image would get burnished You know, an image would improve if they do one of those interviews. The problem in this case is if, you know Arians, he's going to come out and say, I want to give this job to Todd Bowles. And our organization uh, wants to give this job to Todd Bowles. So the question is, yeah, the exposure might be good, but why would, I mean, I think a lot of coaches would say, Why would I do this just to help you fulfill a requirement?
1: No, you're absolutely right. And that's the tension. But at the same time, compliance with the Rooney Rule does give a minority candidate that opportunity to go through the process, get another rep under his or her belt, because eventually that's what it's going to be if the NFL's plan at the lower levels of the coaching staffs comes to full fruition. So uh, the, the bottom line is, I expect that loophole to be closed. And if something like this happens in the future, Todd Bowles would have had the job through the end of the season. And then at that point, the Buccaneers would have been required to do a full and open and inclusive search that complies with whatever the terms of the Rooney rule may be at the time. On the issue of succession, let's hear a little bit more from Bruce Arians yesterday explaining why it was so important for him to be able to leave at a time when he could pass the torch to one of his guys.
2: Number of people have already asked, why are you stepping away from the chance to go to the Hall of Fame and win another Super Bowl? Because I don't give a shit about the Hall of Fame. Secession is way more important to me. This has been my dream for a long time. Guys that know me, they knew I wanted one of my guys to take over. And that's more important to me than anything and have a place where I could go and be welcomed back.
3: When, when you were able to assemble the coaching staff upon your original hiring, Um, was that a discussion that you and Todd had had? Was that something that you had understood between the two of you that at some point you had hoped to give it specifically to
1: No, because
2: I really thought he was going to be a head coach after the super bowl. And then this past year. So, um, it's long overdue. Um, just that, you know, watching the hiring process last year and Byron going through what he did and Todd, um, very, very fortunate for me that we could do it today. And, uh, But, yeah, we do have an unbelievable coaching staff. We've got at least four or five guys and maybe six or seven young guys that I think will be head coaches in this league one day.
1: He was actively pushing for Byron Leftwich and Todd Bowles to get jobs elsewhere, which would have undermined the plan to handpick one of those two men to become the next head coach and have the environment that he wanted. And it would be welcoming. It will be welcoming. He'll be allowed to come back whenever he wants. It's not going to be like it's a completely different regime and they – they they don't let him in the front door, so there's a benefit there, but the idea that he is able to ensure that one of his guys gets a chance, and a good chance, as you said earlier, not Kyle Trask or Blaine Gabbard as the quarterback, but Tom Brady for a year, and lay the foundation, have a better chance to stick around beyond 2022. So I understand it. Now, look, I in my mind— I, and maybe I just missed it, but I never associated with Arians with so, as someone who was hellbent on walking away at a time where he knew he'd be able to hand the the, the reins to one of his assistants. And frankly, frankly, Peter, I, I you got to wonder at some level whether the Buccaneers are thinking, boy, we'd have rather this was done back in January, so we could have done a more expansive search because maybe – we want to see what else is out there. And they, they were kind you know, of put a tough I spot. Think, Ownership was kind of put in a tough
3: spot here when you think about it. I think you're right to some degree. But there's two reasons why I think they probably would have settled on Bowles regardless. Number one is that the Glazer family uh, has hired more black coaches in their history owning the team than any franchise In NFL history, they've hired four black coaches uh, going back to Tony Dungy uh, over the last 30 years uh, and in their history. And no team in the NFL has hired more than two full-time black coaches. Nine teams have. Uh, They're the only ones who've done more than two and they've done four. And secondly, I was told the other day that the the Bucks were more interested in a smooth transition rather than... Because think about this. People don't understand this. Three or four years after Bill Cower stopped coaching, whatever year that was, 90... I'm sorry, uh, 06 or something. I think it was 06. 06 was his last year, it, yes. Yeah, so this was maybe 10 or 11. I, I was talking to him once, and I said... Do you ever think of getting back in? And he goes, first thing he said was, all my coaches are on other staffs now. It'd be, that's, that would really be hard. Not, not to mention the fact that I like my life now, but you know, all his coaches are gone. And so imagine, Mike, if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have a coaching search and choose someone else, which is entirely possible then I believe that what would have happened is the, the coaching staff you have now, they're going to scatter to the wind and they will go on different teams, just like, just like every other coaching staff would. When what I was told is that internally, they really like their coaching staff and they love Todd Bowles. If they had lost Todd Bowles to another head coaching job, And Arians told me he thought he was going to get the Miami job. But if they had lost Todd Bowles, that would have been a humongous loss for them. And they would have figured it out. Every team always does. But that's why I think, and I understand your point, that the organization was put in a tough spot. I think whether it was January 15th or March 30th, They were going to pick Todd Bowles. One last thing about Bruce Aarons before we take the break, too, because
1: the general reaction to the fact that he is leaving and is gone has been not even a full shrug. The betting odds didn't change on any metric for the Buccaneers. (laughs) People assume they're just going to pick up where they left off. But a point Sims made yesterday that I think we need to underscore here. It's easy to take for granted a coach who does the job well on game day And never screws up. Because what do we always talk about the morning after the games? Which coach engaged in horrible clock management? Which coach made a a head-scratching decision on fourth down? Which coach iced his own kicker with a timeout? I can't think of a time where Bruce Arians was that guy that we were saying, what in the hell is wrong with him? Right? And and not that Todd Bowles is going to be one of those guys. But my point is, it's easy to take for granted the head coach who has it all buttoned up on game day and doesn't have those unforced errors that give us so
3: much fodder for scrutiny and criticism the day after games. You know, the one other thing that I kept thinking about, I kept thinking about how coaches age these days and how when you look at Uh, It it seems logical that Bruce Arians, who turns 70 later this year, that's about the time that you would think, okay, time to go play golf or, or time not to work 16 hours a day anymore. Okay? But life has changed. Look at Pete Carroll. He's 70. Look at Bill Belichick. In two weeks, he'll be 70. And... Bill Belichick said a long time ago, yeah, I can tell you, I won't be Marv Levy. I won't be coaching in my 70s or whatever. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing that. I forget exactly what he said, but that's essentially what it was. And I asked Josh McDaniels at the combine, so now that you're gone, now that you can actually talk, how much longer for Belichick? And he goes, I, I have no idea. He said, and he said something to me, he goes, it looks like there's no end in sight. <laughs> but but look, that's for some people, okay? But for Arians, and 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 this is the point I was going to make. I think I'm right in saying that Chuck Knoll was 59. Yes. He retired. Yes. Okay? Bruce Arians got his first head coaching job when he was 60. Now, that was the interim job in Indianapolis in 2012. And... And in that year, what basically happened is they went 9-3 and three under Arians. Uh, he, uh, he, got a co- he got a job out of that with the Arizona Cardinals. And in his 60s, Bruce Arians won 95 games. His last two years, he went 29-10, and 10, obviously helped by Tom Brady a lot. But it's so interesting now to look at Chuck Knoll I think when he retired, he was the fourth or fifth winningest coach of all time. Uh, and he retired at 59. Arians didn't have his first coaching job until he was 60. And then he won 95 games after that, when Chuck Knoll was long since on a sailboat in the, you know, along the Atlantic coast.
1: And there are people in the Steelers organization, this was as of 10, 15 years ago, who were confounded by the fact that after Chuck Noll left, No one ever even mentioned him as a potential candidate to coach an NFL team. He was only 59 when he left. And here's the ultimate contrast, and then we do have to take a break. John Harbaugh is currently 59. And and he seems like he's just getting started. And when we talked about his extension earlier this week, I had a vision of if you could get all at the same time, the same age, Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, and John Harbaugh. Harbaugh would pick one guy up in each hand, spin him around, slam him together, and throw him 50 yards in either direction. That's the way Harbaugh is going to be when he's coaching at age 70. And the world has indeed changed. And Bruce Arians looked like he could keep going as long as he wanted to. He looks great. He looks rested. He looks healthy. And he looks like he's raring to go. And, uh, again, NFL, go get him and get him involved in your broader league-wide efforts to improve diversity and inclusion in the coaching ranks because i think he would have a few pointed things to say to some of these owners and other coaches all right good news is peter this may have been our best opening segment ever bad news is we burned half the show in one segment so we get a jam six into one hour we'll be back with more pft live right after this
0: across america bp supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing
1: The Rams would like to buy a Val, pretty expensive Val, five years, $50 million. But, of course, we know how that goes when it's time to dig into the yes. details of the Bobby Wagner deal. It's not going to be five years, $50 million. But he is the latest member of the Rams. I saw Charles Robinson tweet yesterday, an alteration of the less Snead F-Them Picks t-shirt. It now says F that cap because they keep finding a way <laughs> to get... To get big-name players under the cap. I mean, look at each level of the defense now. You got an all-time great Aaron Donald on the line, Bobby Wagner, linebacker, Jalen Ramsey, corner. Not that Ramsey is all-time great, but right now one of the best in the league at his position and could be on track to be an all-time great. But an amazing accomplishment for a team that is known for
3: offense. Pretty good defense, and defense gets a little better with Bobby Wagner. Mike, two points to make about this, and I know we got to go in hurry-up mode in this for a few uh, uh, segments. But two points to make on this: number one, I was told yesterday, if Von Miller signed with the Rams, they would not have even entertained a conversation with Bobby Wagner because they would have spent their basically their their you know the the gathered up all the pocket change they had to make sure that they could keep Von Miller. When Von Miller left, they had a little discretionary income that they could spread around how they wanted to. Number two, I think the key to this contract, whenever it is publicized, you will see that the Rams basically said to Bobby Wagner, look, we would love to have you, but here's what we can pay and because Bobby Wagner is his own agent and was negotiating himself I'm sure with help from whoever but because he was negotiating himself there was no filter of an agent between him and Tony Pastores who was negotiating the contract he's the cap guy negotiator for the Rams there was no there was nothing between him there was just Pastores would say listen Here's what we can afford. And for those people who say five years, $50 million, how does that happen? Look, you'll see with the cap when, when you see the contract that this probably is a two-year contract that if they have to get out of it after one year, they'll have a minimum amount of pain. Um, and, and, and the fact that the Rams were negotiating from a strong position, We have a young player at your position who we really like, and that there was not desperation in going to get Bobby Wagner, I believe, helped them sign Bobby Wagner.
1: I suspect Bobby Wagner's position was, I know what I want, and I'm not signing until I get it, and I think the Rams had to tell him at some point, well, look, we do have only so many dollars to spend, and what we would be willing to do now You just can't assume that you can wait until July or August and that's still going to be there. We have to move on at some point. So you have to ask yourself, what am I waiting for and what am I going to get if I keep waiting? And am I going to put myself in a position where what's available to me, either from the Rams, the Ravens, or anyone else, isn't going to be close to what would be available today? And I think that's part of the tough conversation you need to have with a guy who knows he's going to be making less than he wanted, but the longer he waits... The less is going to be available, quite possibly. So he makes the move, they make the move, they add Bobby Wagner to that defense. And, you know, quietly, Peter, I mentioned this yesterday, I think, to Miles Simmons. Last year, there was so much talk of the Buccaneers repeating. There's been no talk of the Rams repeating. There should be, because the NFC has weakened across the board. Except for the Buccaneers, although they're without their head coach now, which is not as simple as I think we're assuming. But the Rams have stayed pretty strong. We showed the list earlier of all the guys who left and the guys they've added. Well, okay, fine. Super Bowl champion's going to lose guys. But I I feel like they are are a team, and you see that that they're behind the Buccaneers in the odds from points bet as to being the next NFL champion. I think the Rams probably should be taken a lot more seriously as a team to repeat, at least as the NFC champion, whether or not they win the Super Bowl is going to be a different issue.
3: You know, I think when I look at those odds and look, as you know, Mike, odds makers make odds to get people to bet, uh, to motivate people to bet on both sides of a bet, you know? So, uh, I think you could look at those and say, wow, you know, the, the, the Rams are pretty far down. Maybe they shouldn't be far down, but you know what that, what those odds, can we put that up one more time? I want to, I just, there's one thing about gambling and odds that I think people need to realize. Like a lot of people, their, their fun team this year, their pet team is the Los Angeles Chargers. I've been thinking a lot about the Chargers. They've had a great off season. And what if you can sort of get in your head that they're going to be really, really good this year. But the problem with loving the Chargers is they're in the AFC West. Right. And so it's going to be very hard to win home field through the playoffs if you're a team in the AFC West this year. I'm not saying it's impossible. Somebody might go 14-3 and three and win that. But look at the teams at the top. The Buffalo Bills. And other than the Patriots, Miami's going to be improved, but they're going to have a good division record. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers might go 6-0 and in their division. Who knows? I don't know. They might lose to New Orleans again, and the Green Bay Packers could go 6-0 and in their division. When you have a soft division schedule, you have the ability to have a much better regular season record. Home playoff games, although not essential, have usually equated to advancing deep into the playoffs.
1: The other reality, too, odds like these that you see on the screen, they're a reflection of the action that has been placed to date. The more that gets placed on a team, the odds go one way, the less they go the other. And I think the Rams are at plus 1,100, which is 11 to 1, because not many people are betting on them. Because, Peter, the point you made about the Chargers, look at this. Three teams from the AFC West are on this chart. The Chiefs at 10 to 1, the Broncos at 16 to 1, thank you, Russell Wilson, and the Chargers at 16 to 1, all in the same damn division. That's a reflection right. of people saying these are the teams that we're smitten with going into 2022. And that's where, for the people who are inclined to wager, that's where you can cut through the notion of the teams that are overlooked and the ones that are overlooked that maybe should take them more seriously become the value bets and I think the Rams are a value when you consider what's going on in the NFC this year with the the migration of talent from one conference to the other the Rams have to be feeling pretty good Devontae Adams is gone oh that's a shame Bruce Aarons is gone oh that's a shame and the Rams just keep getting stronger Aaron Donald's back Sean McVeigh's back bobby wagner's in yeah von miller's gone but we have matthew stafford signed and and he's going to be around for five more years so they have to be feeling pretty good about where they are let's take a break a team that is not feeling pretty good about where it is the washington commanders the congressional investigation has taken a turn that is interesting for us but very frightening for the folks who are in charge of the commanders franchise we'll discuss that when pft live continues right after this